So what is a commandment? What does it mean to behave in accordance with one's faith identity? In this episode, Rabbi Ari and Pastor Danielle discuss the concept and practice of mitzvah, the doing of good deeds in this world, which is, of course, rich with depths of meaning beyond just mere religious practice. Dancing chairs, being fruitful and multiplying, and meeting Jesus. This week on A Rabbi and a Pastor Walked In. We are excited to tackle today the concept of mitzvah. What does mitzvah mean, Ari? Yes, mitzvah, and it's concomitant phrase <laughs> bar and mitzvah and bat mitzvah, hmm. which mean adult. And bar is son and bat is daughter, and mitzvah means a command. So uh, it's a divine command or just a regular command. If you give your computer a command, it's also a mitzvah. But um, <laughs> actually, it's not a mitzvah. But... Um, so the word mitzvah doesn't just mean command only. It can also have this connotation of like a good work. A right. Good so deed. do a mitzvah means do a good a good deed, and it means a good deed if you do it. If you don't do it, it's no no deed at all. So um, the the whole concept of a mitzvah is something you that the universe commands. In mm-hmm. Kantian philosophical terms, it, we compare it to a categorical imperative that the universe demands. In and of itself, that is, even if you were a humanist, as it were, hmm. uh, you should come up with the same set of uh, at least moral laws. Some things to do. If God created the world, and the world speaks in the language of mitzvah, as it were, that mm-hmm. there are things that human beings and do because it's the right thing to do, and that's the way that these mitzvot—that's the plural of mitzvah—are embedded in the universe. That hmm. is, they're they're beyond just chance that and that's the, the concept that is if if the, if it is a divine created sense of morality mm-hmm. then it would come through in the very nature of being human right because we're made in the image of god right then as god's, god's image stuff. bearers right. out of god's stuff right, right then we um we will then know we'll it'll be built into our dna so to speak to start to figure out ways to do a good deed to do something good now what's the first mitzvah given in the bible be fruitful and multiply be fruitful and multiply right the first have command. sex often i think people just... <laughs> i don't think that's exactly well, what but it you is. know there's only one way to do it so. <laughs> they were using test tubes back then so. <laughs> right um but specifically that i think the connotation there is the act the, the of creation the procreation, right to right. right um so basically life should Bring Take forth more life. More life. Yeah. Right. And and the being fruitful, right? We we're accustomed to that um, that saying, but it the idea that it's from seed, like from a seed bearing plant, should more seeds come and then that creates more trees or right. more of that fruit. Um, and the idea that, you know, today we can go and buy seedless grapes or seedless oranges or something. Those are not good biblical fruits, right? Like you need a, <laughs> your biblical fruit is going to have a seed and it will then bear more fruit. In that's this right. World. Yeah. So, um, so well, that's the first the good command. thing about a fruit yes. with no seeds is a whole lot less spitting going it's on. It's a around. lot less spitting. That's true. <laughs> or just crunching. And crunch. yes. <laughs> yeah. um, but then... Um, next, if after God gives that's like the first command that God gives to humanity, um, although prior to that, he tells Adam to tend the garden, 
No. Adam? No, no, the creation of humanity in 126. Oh, you're right. Right, right, right. right, right. It's Tending second, the gardens in, one, in, the, in second, the second creation story. The second story. creation story, yeah. The one that happened in Jersey. The first one happened in New York. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Always a rough draft before the final That's copy. That's right. <laughs> the reason why Adam's created first. Um, <laughs> okay, so... so then after that, in the second creation story, Adam's also given that, that job to, again, reflect the image of God as God tends the garden and plants. Then, no, Adam is also called to that same task. But after that, when's the first time that the word mitzvah is used in the Bible? Now, that's something I have no idea. Um, that's a good question. I think that actually most of the time that you hear the concept of the, in, in the phrase mitzvah, mm-hmm. uh, uh, it would be in the time, starting in the book of Exodus when you yeah. get, begin to get those laws. But I know that we're uh, an emits of when I command you. So it's God's way speaks in, in, in Deuteronomy. But uh, but what about uh, when God commands Abraham? Well, from- well, I'm wondering if no, it's not so much. Yeah, it's just it says, and God mm-hmm. said, "Walk before me and be perfect." That's right. easy. Right. I'll walk in front of God if I can figure out where God is, and I'll just be perfect. <laughs> sure. Got that. No problem. Yeah. But um, uh, no, I, th- I think that, that Abraham does give a command to the servant to go get a wife for Isaac, but I'm not sure that it's put in that word. Hmm. But, it, it, you know, that's a, that's, a, that's a good question, and I will research that and, and be sure to drop it in com- conversation from now on. But, I'm just curious. I'm no, just, no, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so let's continue. Sorry. But I want to hear your story again about when you had bought mitzvah envy. Right. So, so the reason why we're talking about this is because I had shared with you that growing up um, – in my junior high experience, I did a three, I was, I grew up Lutheran and I did a three year confirmation program. And the, in Lutheranism, um, or in that practice of Christianity in your denomination, you typically are baptized as an infant, um, which was a way of sort of mirroring the uh, circumcision ritual of coming into the fold in the family, right? So part of that, just as, uh, Jewish parents were doing that for their eight-day-old babies. Then Christians in their practice of Christianity started looking for ways to sort of bring their children into the tribe early. And so baptism was was part of that, in addition to the high infant mortality rate of 2,000 years ago, um, 1,500 years ago, people being very, very concerned about their children dying and not being able to be brought straight into heaven. Um, so let's put them into baptismal waters right away. So right. I thought you were going to say that, that uh, you're really worried about waterborne diseases. So let's just put them right <laughs> in. Put them right in the water. No, water no. That everybody no, else no, 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 <laughs> no, that a, a deep concern, right? So, so many children, one out of two, I think dying, right? Yeah. So how do you um, care for your child in the world to come and, and make sure that they're part, that they're saved. Um, and so they, they would do the baptism waters. I'm not saying that's good theology. I'm just saying that's part of why um, from the, from what we see as ritual immersion of mikvah that we see of, of immersive waters that we see in the baptism stories of John and Jesus in the new Testament that shifts to rather than just sort of saying, I want to immerse myself into the waters and under the, um, interpretation of these teachings or repentance or I'm um, trying to show that I'm going to become a, now a follower of Jesus. Why would you have an infant do that? Well, this is so, sort of some of those reasons why. 
Um, but in the Lutheran church, people started as, as in the Catholic church, they started baptizing infants, but then they realized that there was a step sort of missing that because an infant didn't have that consciousness to be able to say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. I want to become a Christian. There then became the practice of confirming your baptism. So when you became 13 years of age, you know, at some point, 12, 13, 14, somewhere around there, you would have a confirmation, which was the confirmation of the baptism that your parents had immersed you in that water, saying basically, yes, I, I do take this on myself. My parents, however, did not believe in infant baptism. They wanted my sister and I to be able to make our own decision. So when I got to the confirmation age, which was just everybody was doing this at my church, they were like, um, you haven't been baptized yet, so you have nothing to confirm. <laughs> so I was baptized at 13, um, which was a very awkward experience, standing in front of the entire congregation over a tiny little bowl and having, I had a really cute party dress on, right? And, um, and sort of leaning over um, and getting sprinkled water onto my hair that I'm sure had lots of aqua in it. I guess it was not full immersion. It was not full immersion. Right, exact bird bath size. Um, Because again, typically infants. And I had only seen infants up there my whole life. I'd never seen an adult or semi-adult baptism ever. And my dad and my sister and I all were baptized on the same day. So it meant quite a bit to me. I talked to the pastor about it. I studied what it meant to be baptized. Um, I felt a bit awkward and gangly doing that because I'd never seen anybody else do it, only and babies. Because you were 13 and, and you were awkward 13 and, and, gangly. and I'm awkward and gangly. Um, but it meant a lot. So because I think it, because I felt a little awkward and I still wanted to do it, it meant all the more, right? I really wanted to do this. But the confirmation still meant something to me because I, um, it, it was a, in our church growing up, it was a three-year process. We had to do 20 service hours a month for three years. Um, We had to meet with the pastor every Wednesday. I think summers were off a little bit. We had every Wednesday meeting with the pastor. Um, Every Sunday, still having Sunday school with the pastor or with one of the teachers there. And then we had to listen to the sermon every Sunday and take notes and submit those notes to the pastor following. So we had sermon notes we had to turn in. And in the Lutheran church, there were acolytes, people that carried and lit the candles and kind of wore a robe. And that could count as some of your service hours. So for those three very influential years in your life of junior high, we were very, very involved in the church. Um, and I still would look back to that time period of saying it, it deeply shaped me. And it turned at the beginning of that, those three years, I would look and say, geez, how am I going to find 20 service hours this month? You know, I'm, I'm 12 years old. Who's going to let me do anything? And I would walk around. I took them seriously. Maybe others didn't, but I'd walk around my neighborhood and say, hey, Mrs. David, can I help you carry in your groceries? And will you mark off 15 minutes on my sermon hour? Can I help weed this elderly person's yard or I'll go do babysitting for free? All of these things help my parents. So I did all of that for three years. By the end of the three years, I would just look down at the end of the month and go, oh, what did I do this month? Oh, yeah, I went to the soup kitchen. I did this. I did that. And, and service had simply become part of my life. So what started out as filling in a blank and having to cross something off, it, it just changed who I was. So that goes into the whole question of faith and works. Yeah. That is, is it works that generate faith? Mm-hmm. Or faith that generates worth? And, and we'd works say and yes. The is yes, yes. But <laughs> right. the thing is that you can instill Right. A, a concept mm-hmm. simply by repeating a mm-hmm. kinetic version of it. Right. That is, your, your body actually has memory. Mm-hmm. And so athletes train their body to do things mm-hmm. on their own. And you can train a mind the same kind of way. As yeah. long as you spend your time doing it and you begin to wonder about it, mm-hmm. then 
yeah, when when we count the days between Passover and Shavuot, and it's something I do every day, when I get to the end of it, I still want to count. <laughs> right, right. You've trained your your soul to attend to these things, right? Yes. I mean, it's why we pray. It's why we try to have some practices, right, so that we can be part of this community. So at the end of our three years, we had to write an essay as to why we wanted to be confirmed, what it meant to be a follower of Jesus, what it meant to be part of this church. And we had to stand up and read that essay in front of the entire congregation. And um, and we wore, you know, stoles and looked, you know, the part. I think that's part. an unfortunate word. I know, a stole, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and it was a really special day, and I loved it. And... I also, during that time, had a very dear Jewish friend named Leah, and she had her bat mitzvah. And when I went to her bat mitzvah, so she obviously was reading and training and studying with her rabbi and doing a lot of other things what as well. Doing? Well, I was staying Free with the pastor and, me, and right, stuff, yeah. doing all these things together. I had to study catechism, like Luther's catechism, and understand the 95 theses and all of the things that Lutherans do. Um, and when I went to her bat mitzvah, I remember a very distinct memory sitting in a pew, right, in her synagogue. Um, we had pews in my church. She had pews in her synagogue. But she got to stand up and read from the Torah and watching her pick up the Torah, read with it, um, sing it, and then um, comment on that text. And she it was a Reformed synagogue, so she wore tallit and she had a kippah on. No, if you say it was a Reformed synagogue, so she wore a tallit. That's not a necessary thing. No, I just she mean wore she, tallit, she wore a tallit. Even though it was a Reformed congregation. Well, I just meant because she was she was female, right? I mean, they're already doing a bat oh, mitzvah, okay, right? They I mean, let girls wear tallit. Right, tally, right. Yeah. It was beautiful. And then the party after was incredible, of course. I really liked the chair and the dancing and all of the other joy that came to it, particularly the chair and the dancing. I thought that was the best part. But my favorite. For people who don't know, it's not a dancing chair. It's no. a chair that they put the bat mitzvah on and carry her in it while they're dancing around her. While they're dancing That's the around chair her. And the, dancing. the chair and the dancing. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. We should just tell everybody just watch Fiddler on the Roof and yeah. then you'll see a little bit of a scene. But, um, but my favorite part was watching her sing the Torah. And I was jealous. I wanted to do that. And I knew that our text was the same. Um, our Hebrew text was the same, our Old Testament, Christians call the Old Testament, our Hebrew Bible. And I was jealous that she could read the original language and sing it and understand it and comment on it beautifully. And I felt robbed of not having that similar experience with my own text. So I came home and I asked my mom, because we had had a spine, we had a book and the spine of the book said, Christianity is Jewish. And it was by a theologian named Schaefer. I'd never read the book, but I'd always seen that book spine speaking to me off of my parents' bookshelf. So I asked my mom, if that book's true, Christianity is Jewish, then, and we come from this, then why did we do away with that? How come we didn't just sort of like add the Jesus part? Why did we remove ourselves from that practice and that root? And my mom told me at that moment, um, you're right, we've lost something. And I have this, very, I have a very clear memory of having that conversation with her in the kitchen. So I, that, that shaped me for the rest of that time that I had lost something by not having that experience and that tradition built in to what was also deeply important to me in my confirmation practice. So, And my reform temple yeah. that I grew up in had gotten rid of bar mitzvah. The Why? same kind of way that the Christianity had gotten rid of it, and they got rid of it for two reasons. Hmm. First of all, because it was at 13, mm -hmm. and they felt that 
13-year-olds are not able to make this the kind of confirmatory statement that you actually made. Hmm. Um, and so they moved it to 15, 16, basically sophomore year in high school. And um, it would happen on Shavuot, the Pentecost, the after, Shav after Passover when we receive Torah. So it's a way to affirm the receiving of Torah and what it means to you. Hmm. And they got rid of bar mitzvah for another reason, that they didn't believe in necessarily doing all the ritual mitzvahs, hmm. right? So they, uh, there were so many things we did not do. As a matter of fact, when I was ordained a rabbi, it was still forbidden to wear a kippah really? on the bima really? of my temple. Wow. And even the word temple is interesting, because when you say right. the word temple, I think... Buddhist Her temple, Hindu temple, right, or, or I the think temple, the J temple in Jerusalem before it was destroyed in 70 CE. Well, that's exactly <laughs> the case. That is, the traditional prayers say to bring back, rebuild the temple, and uh, and reform movement wanted to say we don't want the don't sacrificial want, right. service, we don't want one temple, we like synagogue life. Right. This is what we'll do, and we'll call it a temple to show that we don't want to rebuild another temple. Mm -hmm. Every synagogue is a temple. Mm -hmm. So that's fine. I, I still believe in that as a concept. Yeah. Uh, but but I don't use the word temple anymore. It's out, and I haven't used my own place of worship. I haven't called it a temple hmm. in 45 years. Right. 40 years. And uh, even a lot of the congregations, the Reformed congregations out here, stop calling themselves temples and call themselves congregations. Mm -hmm. So they get away from the concept of temple. Hmm. But anyway... Um, so it didn't happen in my congregation when I was 13. and But what did happen was confirmation when I was 15 as a sophomore in high school. And it was uh, the height of the baby boom, the first wave crest. I was 116 kids in my confirmation class. Whoa. It was a 2,000 household congregation. Wow. Yeah. It was a real personal ceremony. And... <laughs> And I had bronchitis every year, so I had to miss a bunch of Sunday school, which I liked. And I took Hebrew every year. But since mm -hmm. they had gotten rid of the bar mitzvah requirement, they, they taught the first 16 of the 22 letters of the alphabet every year. Oh, no. It was stupid. It was the dumbest thing ever. Oh. And, uh, but anyway, uh, <laughs> but uh, I did not learn it there. Hmm. I learned it later on. But uh, I was in uh, the confirmation class, and we did have, it was, you know, like I said, it was a, 116 kids. It was a room so long, you could you know it would take Aaron Rodgers to pass down the whole length of it. But anyway, and I was sick with bronchitis, so I didn't have a perfect attendance record. And they only gave the speaking parts out to kids with perfect attendance right. records because they uh, assumed that if you were there, it's because not because you weren't sick, it's because you really wanted to be there, which I knew was not the case with a lot of these kids. Right. I wanted to be there much more than most of them because right. I was at the, anyway. But I didn't have one, so it, my confirmation experience was not only massive, impersonal, but it was a piece mm. of stupid shit that was a, pardon me, <laughs> it was a cantata that was somebody wrote, you know, to express. Uh -huh. It was it was a performance. It was the absolute worst thing possible, mm. in my mind, of what religion could be. Mm. It wasn't involving. Mm -hmm. It was a performance. It wasn't an affirmation. Mm. It was a performance. Mm. And I was in the chorus. Right. Boy. So anyway, when a friend of mine, Ethan Hamo, his father asked if they could become bar mitzvah. We had a new rabbi then because the rabbi who had been instrumental in getting rid of it had retired. And we had a new rabbi. And they said, sure, he could have a bar mitzvah. And so I asked if I could. And I, sure. so I was the second. 
wow. in the congregation if they brought it back. And I was 16. I drove to my own bar mitzvah lesson, so some parents will hear this and say, right. oh my, I could have had him. We should all do it at 16. <laughs> but anyway, um, and, uh, and I learned a lot. And because of that uh, one-on-one relationship with my youth rabbi, mm-hmm. the assistant rabbi, I, uh, I, I decided that, you know, a rabbi was a normal human being. Right. And because, uh, you know, we're just sitting together all the time and talking about this, that, and the other and teaching me how to <laughs> say the Hebrew. Didn't chant it. Hmm. We didn't sing it then. We chant. It was, and, and, and it was so different than a traditional bar mitzvah that, you know, and my, my haftarah, the part from the prophets, wasn't from the prophets. It was Psalm 13 hmm. in English hmm. that I just read with no blessing. So, but I didn't know because, right. you know, I mean, I went to other bar mitzvahs, but I you didn't. You were only the second. Well, no, I went to other bar mitzvahs right. and my friends who were in the conservative sure. congregation, but I didn't understand what was going on. Right. It was all in Hebrew. Well, and just in terms of the ritual within your own congregation, you right. were just the second one. So right, so they're making they're it up as they went working, along. Figuring it out. I know. So that was my experience with bar mitzvah. Hmm. And then I uh, was a Hillel director, a rabbi at a, Stan- at a college at Stanford, and, uh, and I didn't do that. Hmm. And I didn't do it for two reasons. First of all, the kids there, the students and faculty, uh, either had a bar mitzvah or didn't want one. Right. But the few that did want one were fine. I, I spent time working with them to do this because if they didn't have a bar mitzvah, it was bar, bar mitzvah, bar boy, girl, but, um, then I could do that and, and justify the time because I right. would be in, working with students. But I couldn't do faculty children or staff mm-hmm. children because they should be going to congregations and I would be a direct assault. I, I already sure. didn't charge for attending high holiday sure. services, which is some kind of a right. small furor. <laughs> but I couldn't believe, I did, just didn't believe in it. But um, so uh, I didn't do bar mitzvahs mm-hmm. or bat mitzvahs. In that case, I didn't do many of them. I did a couple. I did three faculty fa- uh, families. Um, and I said I would only do it if I taught you how to lead the service. Like It is my job as a rabbi on this campus to teach a Jewish faculty member how to lead a Jewish service. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I justified that. Um, so I didn't lead it. But I did develop the kind of bar mitzvah that I did at the congregation. And in the congregation, we didn't teach children. We didn't focus on the concept of a mitzvah. We did, in terms of social justice and tikkun olam, repairing the world. We taught them what that meant, what it means to be a mensch, which, you know, a person you can recount on, you know, a good person you can count on. Um, we taught them that, but we didn't teach them to commit themselves to doing every ritual mitzvah hmm. in the world. Sure. Because our congregation is much more uh, loose with what we do and what we don't do. Right, and so when we talk about that, just for some of the Christians listening there are 613 commandments. Symbolically. Symbolically, mitzvot, right? And so when we start to um, think about how various Jewish congregations might be practicing this, there are some that might have an emphasis to the nth degree of trying to live out in very strict practice, all 613. And then there's others, as Judaism has also shifted and, and moved the same way Christianity does, right? So we've Some got- of us think we've gotten the barnacles off. Some right. Some, some some people like to dance on the barnacles. Some might argue that we we uh, should put them back on, right? So. Right, right. I don't think we're going to put them back on, but but I do believe. I mean, I've been to a lot of bar mitzvahs in traditional places, and some of them are fun, and some of them are 
suffer from what traditional places suffer from, which is not allowing bat mitzvah, not allowing egalitarianism. But I have been to Orthodox congregations, as you've seen in Israel, where men and women take pretty much equal roles in leading services and reading from the Torah and doing bar or bat mitzvah. But right, so uh, it varies according to congregation, right? Yeah, and, yeah. and it's very rare in a, in a traditional congregation to do that. Sure. When I say traditional, I mean more traditional than a conservative congregation. And I, w- I would just say that I think within every um, stream of Judaism and Christianity that there are places where you can find people practicing in such a way that seems to bring forth life and joy and hope. Right. And then there are people that you can find that seem to be practicing in such a way that, that just seems heavy and burdensome in, in all of them. I don't, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's any stream of Christianity that has the corner market on, we've got this down to a science. And as long as you're this strain of Christianity, you know that you'll be practicing your faith in a way that's light and hopeful. Well, and there are people who claim that, but we there can are. all look on the outside in and say, right. well, maybe not. But in any case, our congregation is, is uh, we, we try to do the greatest hits. Mm-hmm. Uh, of of the prayer book instead of doing the encyclopedia. So when you think about somebody becoming a bar or a bat mitzvah, like a, a person becoming a son or daughter of the commandments, right? Um, and typically it's around thirteen, right? But it can be happening at another time. Well, it can be later, right? I have a dear friend, and it was who, girls for girls. It was twelve twelve years, but we lengthened it to thirteen to make it number one egalitarian mm-hmm. and number two to keep them from quitting religious school mm-hmm. a year early. A year. Yeah, I I have a dear friend who uh, went through and did her, she wasn't permitted to do it when she was growing up, right? She was female and it wasn't practiced, but now that when she was in her 60s, she went and got herself bat mitzvahed. And and so you can become, you can, and so that's the thing. Since the the word bar bat mitzvah means a child of the mitzvah, Mm -hmm. a child of the command itself, that means you leave your parents' authority. The parents leave your responsibility behind. Hmm. Hmm. That is no longer morally responsible for you. Okay. Or financially responsible for you. In American law, we would go on until 18 or sure. more, but whatever. But but they cease to be morally responsible for the punishment that you would incur. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they taught you what they taught you, and now you're an adult, so you can make your own decisions. So what does it mean to become Barabat Mitzvah at 40? Mm-hmm. It means that you are learning ritual mitzvot and skills. Mm-hmm. And that you are proclaiming yourself to be an active Jew in front of the congregation of your sure. peers. Um, and so that's what it means on that mm-hmm. level, to gain the ritual skills, because you're already committed to the moral ones, right. God willing. Um, and so we have adult Bart Mitzvah classes where they, they, they learn these skills. And what I did with the Bart Mitzvah classes at my congregation, Eitz Chaim, was to teach the parents and children together. Sometimes we broke up into different groups by age, but... I taught them all how to do these skills hmm. so they could re- they, basically nothing in our congregation can be done only by the rabbi. Mm-hmm. Everything should be able to be done by every congregant. And even though that's an idealistic view of what's going to happen, mm-hmm. that's what we tried for. Hmm. And we were successful more often than not. And we have an awful lot of lay leaders who can do these things. And that's Now, you also asked me, what's the first time mitzvah was mentioned? I don't remember exactly yet, but I do remember that there are two Torah portions that are named with the word mitzvah in them. Hmm. And this will show you the difference between a mitzvah and a good deed. So there are a lot of 
commands, but they're always the God says, do this, do that, do this, do that. And Moses said, do this, do that. But they're not always put as a command. Mm-hmm. But there are two of them. It says one is a tetzave command. And this is in Exodus, the children of Aaron. Right. Aaron and, children. And, 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 that there, and there's another one in Leviticus, tzav, the, the Aaron's, the, the Aaronites. And what are they supposed to do? One is you have to have a ishtamid, the regularly relit fire on mm. the altar. Okay. And then the nertamid, the regularly mm-hmm. relit fire in the menorah. People call it eternal fire, cause, but to me doesn't mean eternal necessarily. What it means is regular. Hmm. And so these are the two things. The fire is not allowed to go out. It has to be tended. Okay. And therefore, it's commanded. Ah. A command is not a good deed. A command is an order that transcends everything else. Hmm. So one of the things I try to teach people is do the mitzvah first. So when you come home from work and you know you got to feed the dog and you got to do this, that, and the other, you got to do the mitzvah first before you plop in front of the television and veg out for the rest of the night Mm -hmm. or whatever it is. Do the mitzvah first. Why? Because it takes precedence. Why? Because it's a mitzvah. If it Mm -hmm. weren't a mitzvah, you wouldn't call it a mitzvah. Hmm. You you can choose what things you want to put in the category of mitzvah, Mm -hmm. right? Right. But they are things like don't let the fire go out, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Right. And that's... That's the category of mitzvah. Got it. Interesting. So we looked at a couple mitzvahs here, and um, written by J- Jewish Messianic Jews, and uh, and the first one talks about Torah, but that's not a, a mitzvah blessing. But one talks about wearing a talit, because there are certain groups that make Christian groups that make talitot. And they put something on there right. in the form of a blessing, and they're all kind of different. But the one that's interesting here is it says, Blessed are you, Lord, King of the universe. And that's how Jewish blessing starts. Right. But then instead of saying, who, who consecrated us by commandments, right, made us holy by commanding us to do stuff, that is, we're only holy when we do things that are commanded, these mitzvot. But it says here, Who has fulfilled all the law through Jesus the Messiah and have covered us with his righteousness. Right, so so this is something that um, a either a Jewish follower of Jesus, a Messianic Jew, or a Christian who appreciates Judaism and is trying to understand more of their of that current culture and maybe more ancient cultural heritage has placed on a tallit on a prayer shawl um, as the way because a lot of tallit traditionally have a Traditional blessing printed on correct, it, correct? Correct, that's on the atarah, the, right. the collar thing, which means, it means crown, but it's the fancy collar of a tali. And the most, and the traditional prayer is what in English? Baruch atah okay. praise you Adonai, our God, ruler of the universe, who has consecrated us with mitzvah, with commandments, and commanded us to wrap ourselves, envelop ourselves in fringes. In tzitzit. the tzitzit, yeah. tzitzit, right? Tzitzit, well, it's, it's, it's singular, right. but tzitzit. Yeah. So that command comes from November, from Numbers 15, right. where um, God commands, gives them, you know, there's a mitzvah. You have to do this thing, this commandment, right? Um, and the mitzvah is that you should wrap yourself in tzitzit, tzitzit, right? So that you have to wear these fringes. And that every time you look upon them, you remember all of the commandments that God has given you to obey. So um, we know that Jesus wore a Talit with well, he would have worn tzitzit on right. his garment. On that his is, garment, people right. didn't have a special 
prayer shawl. shawl. But they, they have the right. They wore them on their clothes. Right, and um, and it's mentioned not just that um, people wanted to touch the corner or the fringes of his garment, but it's also mentioned. He talks about others who are wearing really really long fringes to make themselves look very very holy. And by the way, I should mention, you don't wear a tallit in a, in a cemetery. And the reason is that very reason, not so much that you look haughty, but if it were to drag on the ground over a grave, mm. it's called mocking the poor. Hmm. Who are the poor? The poor are the dead. Why are they called poor? Because they are poor in mitzvot. They right. can no longer do mitzvot. Sure. So by dragging your symbol of all the commandments, right. in order that you remember and do all my commandments, mm -hmm. it says in the, right. in the section with making tzitzit. Right. So when you drag a tzitzit across, you're mocking them with all the mitzvot the that they can't they do. They can't do. Interesting. Right. So, um, so for this particular uh, verse, this, these um, Christian... By the way, this, is, this means even if you don't have, wear a short one, it could fall off. Right. You, you could run with scissors. You could stab yourself in the eye. You could, your tzitzit could fall off in a cemetery. Okay. <laughs> right. Just don't mock those don't poor walk. dead don't, people. Just don't right. wear it there. No, forget it. <laughs> so, so we know that in wearing tzitzit, you are reminded of all of the commandments, of all the mitzvot when mm -hmm. you wear them, um, and that... It in of itself is the fulfillment of a command when you wear it. And so for um, for all the Christians listening, for any picture we've ever seen of Jesus where he's not wearing tzitzit, that's a problem because he's immediately being painted or whether or not that's even a problem. Like for me, there's, thou shalt make no graven images, but that's okay. Um, and so now we're seeing a picture of him not as an observant first century Jew, but as a sinner, right? He's not even wearing the thing that has been commanded to be worn. But these people, the persons, the authors of this particular prayer, blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who's fulfilled all of the Torah through Jesus, the Messiah, and has covered us with his righteousness. And they've put this on a tallit. Um, we can go through a whole other conversation at a later date and time about appropriation and whether or not this is appropriate <laughs> um, for, for Christians to do. But I think the reason why they framed it this way, and again, I don't know these individuals and have to talk with them. You've, you always find the most interesting quotes and things to discuss, Ari. Um, but they have covered us with his righteousness. It sounds like, like a tali. Like a tali. It sounds like they're also trying to justify the reason why they as Christians, today, modern Christians today, are putting a tali on. Um, so they're ascribing an additional meaning to it other than just the Numbers 15 commandment. Um, and they're looking at it through this. Um, right. They would have, there's that whole section of, you know, Matthew, where it says right. that Jesus didn't come to abolish, but to right. fulfill. Matthew five seventeen. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the Torah and the prophets, but I have come to fulfill them. And so that's the language of this particular blessing. Right. So if, some, so if he's fulfilled them, does that mean he's fulfilled them once and for all? For, for all people, for, for all, all people, time, for all so time. no one else has to do or it. Or he's not come to abolish them, but to live in, in them so the Messianic Jews who believe in him as God right. and Messiah would still do these yes. mitzvot yep. because he came not to abolish, but to live in them. Right. And the actual, those term, those terms, abolish and fulfill, are rabbinic terms about how you interpret the Torah. So if, somebody, if we're having a debate and the Torah says, don't get drunk, 
right? And so you say, okay, well, I can have this little cup of wine for Kiddush and that'll be fine and I'm not going to get drunk. So you fulfilled Torah, right? You've not abolished it, you fulfilled it. But if you get drunk off your tukas, And it's not Purim. Right, and it's not Purim, then now you have abolished Torah. So you've, you've practiced it in such a way that you have broken the commandment and broken God's instructions and that thing. So I think... Um, the, this is a conversation the rabbis have, right? Like, hey, that interpretation abolishes Torah. Maybe it's the conversation again of um, Yosef Hagalil, who's letting you have a little bit of milk with your chicken. Um, there That's were right, people because that said, they've never seen a nursing chicken. Have you seen a nursing chicken? Never. I've seen, no chickens do that. No chickens do that. So, so that idea of, you know, sure, okay, we'll let him do it for this time, but we're going to go, as soon as he dies, we're going to go back to the way that we should be practicing this because in his practice, he's pushing on the edge of that envelope, right? He's, he's trying to push all the way to the point where he's going to abolish and not fulfill the intent of the Torah. So when I read that passage in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the Torah and the prophets. I hear Jesus saying, in light of that rabbinic conversation, I'm not here to toss all this stuff out. I'm here to live it out fully so that you can see what it looks like to live out God's mitzvot, God's commands, in such a way, in the way that God intended. So you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and I am also telling you that includes your enemy. That would be, and in doing so, then you're fulfilling Torah. Now, that's still an interpretation, but I think that that's the interpretation Jesus is teaching his disciples. Well, you know, the beginning of Pirkei Avot, which we studied together, says that to make a hedge around the Torah. Right. That is, when you, if you don't want people to kill each other with guns, make guns harder to get. Right. Right. So that's the law around the law. And so there are a lot of laws around the laws uh, that we have. And so one way to look at loving your enemy is to think of it as a law around the law. Right. That is, if you want to be able to love the people you want to be able to love. Right. Then you have to learn how to stop making yes. people into enemies. Right. Right. So that is a law around the law. And if you want to even be able to try to love your neighbor and the people that you're actually close to and love, start with your enemy because then you might actually be successful loving the people that are closest to you. And it reminds right? me of the situation when you were in a lawsuit and I won't have to go through the details right. and you said stinky Jesus. <laughs> right. I remember because I'll never forget that <laughs> because you decided that you would go up and love the person who was you were making having the problem, difficult. making life difficult for right. you. And everything changed after that moment. Right, right. Now, God willing, that should happen every time somebody makes an overture. <laughs> right. But but my goodness, you know. <laughs> and you have those moments where I think, um, for me, if I say that I am a follower of Jesus, then that should mean something in in how I live. And it should communicate something to everyone around me, whether they know Jesus or not, where they follow Jesus or not, as to what they should be able to expect regarding my life. Because I am trying to live in the way that Jesus taught. And he does say in, the, in John, if you love me, you will obey my commands. That's very clear. Well, that's the difference when somebody says, I would die to defend that. And I would say, yeah, but would you live to? Right. And, and it's much harder to live to something. Die you can do in an instant. Mm -hmm. Right, I don't, I'm not. No, it's I'm not true. making any light no. about people who have gone out there and defended people and put their life on the line. Sure, 
But it's really hard to live every day, yes. every morning, every mid-morning, every noon, every okay. mid-afternoon. This is a line in the musical Hamilton where George Washington and Alexander Hamilton have this conversation. And he says, you know, dying is easy, living is harder. That's right. Yeah, it's that that idea of like. I thought it was dying was easy in comedies. <laughs> All of the above. Yeah, I, I think that there should be something, some expectation um, for people who say that they have followed Jesus, that they've taken on the yoke of Jesus, which is then another rabbinic term for interpretation of Torah, and that they are living that out. And Jesus is very clear: they will know that you are my disciples, you're my Talmudim, when you love one another. That's what he says. So, so there's an expectation of some sort of behavior, some sort of um, posturing towards one another. And when I think about commandments, when I think about mitzvot, I think about trying to... Mitzvot. Mitzvot, right? Yeah, mikvot. Right, thank you. <laughs> mitzvot. Perfect. I love it. Uh, when I think of that, I think about trying to follow Jesus in such a way that, um, that I'm obedient. And I'm going to fail at that all the time. But then... If that's the case, I have to truly contend with what Jesus teaches and um, and how we are then expected to live. Now, the problem for Christians, many, many Christians have been taught we're saved by grace, not works. Um, so we should, and we've talked about that recently. So we need to... Like about 10 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, so therefore, you know, you just need to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, and that's it. But I actually don't see that in the text. And for those that are listening that would like to argue with me, that's fine. I will argue with you after you read Matthew chapter 25, where, where Jesus tells a parable that on the judgment day, people will be separated from sheep to the right and goats to the left. And the people to the right, he will say, come, you know, you blessed ones, those you've well done, good and faithful servant. For when I was hungry, thirsty, sick, in you prison, did you vote. did these things for me. You did mates vote, right? You did these things for me. And they say, Lord, when did we see you? So the righteous and don't... And when did they see you? In every hungry right. face and yep. every needy person. But the righteous, they've, they've made it so much a part of their life that they don't even recognize that they have done it. And he said, oh, I tell you the truth. Whenever you did it for one of the least of these... My brothers and sisters of mine, you did it unto me. And to those on the left, depart from me. I never knew you because you did not do these things unto others. These are very clear words. He doesn't say, oh, you said the right words, um, you know, and so that's fine. Come on in. You know, your theology was right, but your practice was wrong. He doesn't do any of those things. It's very clear that it matters what you do. And Abraham in Genesis 18 sees three men approaching and calls them God. Mm -hmm. And then runs out and gets all this food and this and that and organizes a huge thing for them. Yeah. Because even though he sees that they're people, he knows that they're also God. Right. And the next thing is that the angels, as they're called, go down to Lot in Sodom mm -hmm. in chapter 19. Mm -hmm. And he sees the what are called in the text now angels. Right. And calls them people. Mm. uses the same word, mm -hmm. Adonai. But in this case, he uses Adonai, Adonai with a... Hmm. With the the patach, the flat vowel, right. and the other one is Adonai, with a the one that looks like a T, which is only used in the plural for God. Wow, that's and fascinating. And so he calls them the same thing, right? Only in one case, one sees people for what they really are, huh. and one sees angels for what they're not. 
Wow. You can't can't get to the fact that there's there's a there's an occurrence there. He does the right thing anyway. Right. But he but he does it in a strange kind of way. Interesting. In the book of Hebrews says, uh, make sure to always offer hospitality to strangers because you might be entertaining angels unaware. That's right. Commentary on on this particular story. That's right. right? You never know who you when you're going to find Elijah. That's and the way we say it. This all happens right after Abraham has a major surgery. God visits Abraham afterwards, which is where then we get the mitzvah, the good, the command to visit the sick. That's right. <laughs> so it all comes back to mitzvah. And it was like a nose job, but it was a little different. <laughs> Just a bit. Just a bit. <laughs> well, on that note, we'll continue our good wrestling conversation on commandments and and mitzvah and. Um, and I am deeply grateful for the way in which you live out your life in this community um, because it is it is a beautiful and good thing to watch. I'd like to be as good as you think I am. But I... <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll all get that well done. But I have told you servant. this past week that I find some, somebody asked us at a church that we went to to talk to and said, what did you think about Jesus? And I gave him my academic answer of all the things that that I've thought. But I finally realized that I've actually met Jesus and, uh, and I meet Jesus in your life and in Kevin's life, your husband, um, because he so influences what you do. So I've actually been taught by Jesus by watching you. And that's a whole nother level that I never thought I'd ever say before I met you. That's deeply humbling. And um, I'll pray that that can be true. That's deeply humbling. If I get to represent my my rabbi and, and my Messiah's teachings so well in this world, I'm deeply grateful and humbled. Amen. Amen. Jesus, Jesus.